We're thankful for this time this morning. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Praise the Lord. That was a song I hadn't heard in a long time. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. If you'll uh, turn your attention to the Word of God, uh, this is a Bible-believing church. And before we come to the table, I'd like to take you to the Word Cloud and remind you of what we are and what you cherish too, I pray. Uh, all, I, I repeat it every week and I try to bring it in front I've got my red Bible, and it's a kind of a pun. The R-E-D is the same as R-E-A-D. There's a big difference. One has to do with the color, and the other has to do with whether you are taking it inside of you. You know, all Scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the men and women of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped to be able to do what God has called you to do. Uh, we're a Bible-believing church, and inside the Bible, you always will find the gospel. The word gospel means good news. You'll find the good news of Jesus Christ. And part of the good news is seen when you look around in the church, you will see that the cross is empty. Uh, you won't find Jesus hanging on a cross here. Okay? And the reason why you won't find him hanging is because it's already a done deal. It's already been finished. As Jesus said, it is finished as he accomplished it once for all at the cross. There will never, ever, ever need to be another sacrifice. There is no other need for an atonement. What he did was sufficient. It was the only way, and that's why we're covenantal. Jesus entered into a covenant, and he said, this is the way it's going to be forever. And so because of that covenantal language, he said, you have to be perfect to get to heaven. And you know what? That's kind of a bad deal for us. Uh, we can't even go through one day with perfection. We probably can't even go through one hour without sinning. Uh, all of us have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And so the gospel tells us through the covenant that God had to provide someone who could have that perfect standing. And Jesus kept the law. He, he did it perfectly. Uh, in theology, we call that active and passive obedience of Christ. He did it all. And then the way that we get to heaven is not through our works, but by being in him. The covenant of works was met by Christ. And if we're in Christ, then when we go to heaven, it's not because of our works, which we have done, but according to his mercy to include us in him, and we get his righteousness. All of that is a lot of theology, but that's all wrapped up in why we say that we're reformed. Uh, many people may, when I was in a, a school teacher, some folks used to think, Oh, no, pastor is going off to reform seminary. He must be in trouble with the law. They thought it was having to do with a, you know, going to some kind of correctional institute. Um, it, it, well, it actually may be a place where you get your theology corrected. But it, when I went to reform seminary in Mississippi, uh, it, it was because the emphasis on salvation is placed where it ought to be. God is big in salvation. And what does that tell you about man? Man is not so big is a good way to put it. Uh, but when you realize and you grasp this and when you read the text, you're not going to go around boasting about what you did or how you accomplished this. You're going to end up giving what Paul said, he gets the glory. Or as John the baptizer said, he must increase, I must decrease. The gospel message is all about a big God who loved us while we were yet in sins. And you'll see that in our text today. So I want to uh, encourage you now to open your Bibles and reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible words as it was given in the original. We're at a very familiar text in Romans chapter 12. We'll be looking at the first two verses. I imagine if there is a verse in Romans that you've memorized, it might be these. 
you know, where it says, and I'm going to read it twice, but you'll hear it. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And when I go back to my old King James language, which is a lot of the text that I learned came from, uh, from studying back in the days when I was a little guy, uh, growing up in my dad's church, and we were study the Word of God and, and try to memorize different passages. And we'll be encouraging you not only to mem meditate, but also to memorize so that even if you're sitting at the beach on one of those benches on a lovely day like we've had the last few, you can have the Word of God still on your lips and in your thoughts. But in Romans chapter 12, let me read it for you in the old King James, or it's actually the new King James, but it's the King James. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is God's word. And may he add his blessing to it. I hope that your Bibles will stay open as we're going to be tackling an interesting topic today. It's about transformation. And if you could bring up the picture of the butterfly right now, I wanted you to be able to see on the front of the bulletin this same picture. If I zoomed in on it, uh, you wouldn't be able to even know what it was unless you've been... Um, a, there's one guy in the church here that actually raises butterflies. Uh, he gets the silkweed or the milkweed, whatever it's called, and he gets it all together. And um, he showed me a video on it. It's just amazing. But if you look and just focused in on that little green thing, you might just think it's a leaf. You know, and if you focused on the middle one, you begin to see that something is different. You know, what's different between the green one and the middle one? It's not a whole lot of difference in size. But you can see that something is going on on the inside. Because as, as the outer shell becomes more translucent and you can see through it, you can begin to see some of the, the colors that are going to manifest. And for those of us that know the rest of the story, you can look to the right and you can see that what comes out of that cocoon is a butterfly. Now, when, how many of you saw the butterfly go into the cocoon? You see, the, the, the Greek word that describes this terminology or that we pick up in English, uh, the word metamorphosis, or uh, as it's often translated in English, as the transformation. There is a radical difference, the before and the after. Now, there might be some questions, as I've, as I've looked at before, the example of the caterpillar. When you look at this, uh, even scientists have a hard time trying to describe how you can have a crawling creature that learns how to fly. And you can, you can think that the caterpillar is really cute, but most people don't. But when you look at a butterfly, you can't help but see this magnificent piece of art. I mean, to be able to see all those different colors and then to be able to have it fly, even in strong winds. You know, if you had a piece of paper that had colors on it, it would be really pretty, but when you can't make a piece of paper fly. But somehow this crawling creature is able to come out of this cocoon, out of this transformation, and is able to fill up those wings and is, then is able to catch the air and be able to go flying. 
And as I was looking at some of the monarchs, they are, they're able to even fly not only hundreds of miles, but thousands of miles, as many of them actually congregate in, in a section down in the Mexico, Central America area. And you just have to marvel when they have millions of butterflies show up. God is amazing, and he teaches us a lot through these creatures. But the, the question today is not about how the butterfly transforms. The question that Paul is posing to us that we need to unpack is how do you transform? How many of you still look like a caterpillar? I didn't see any hands go up. You know, and how many of you would boast that you'd be able to fly like a, like a butterfly now? Now, the interesting thing in this particular text of Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul introduces us to this concept. It's repeated in three other places of Scripture. Uh, and, I mean, it, when you think about it, the word transformation or metamorphosis, it comes in a couple places. I was just going to highlight one for you. It, um, I have it right there. It is in Colossians as well. When, when, you, when you realize that the transformation takes place... Uh, it is a big change. Did you do the change? Do you take credit for the change? A part of my introduction to this brief sermon is to help us to realize that this is a passive verb. Be transformed. This is something that has to happen to you. It's not something that you get to orchestrate. But as you'll see in the questions on the fourth point at the bottom, there's a little confusion because the beginning part of this text in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, with as much urgency as he can give, he uses his, his authority as an apostle, his authority as a theologian, somebody that's been in the presence of, of the risen Christ, and he says, I beg of you, I beseech you, I call upon you to engage this. So it's kind of interesting how he calls us to be actively engaged. And at the same time, he says, God has to do a work in us to transform us. I'm hoping that in the, in the midst of the sermon, you'll be able to see how it all comes together. So the title of this message is The Mechanics of Transformation. The Mechanics of Transformation. Now, I have to be careful because when I talk about mechanics, I'm not a mechanical engineer, and I certainly am not a mechanic on automobiles. I have trouble just getting a lawnmower going. I know how to pull it and change a spark plug, but it's like, how does all that work? I have a brother-in-law who is a master mechanic of forklifts, and uh, he used to tell me that when he was teaching it to new students so that there would be new people who could fix these things besides him, he said, you know, you can even hear it because an engine has certain parts and it has cer certain processes. And so the two, message, or the two points of the sermon today, we're going to look at the parts that Paul exposes to us, and then we're going to look at how they work together, or the process of transformation. Okay, when you, when you understand it in these two verses, I find that there are three parts. And just like a mechanic for an automobile, and we have one right here, you know, you, you look at the engine and you, you figure out, you, you're, you know how it works, but in order to know how it works, you've got to first identify if the parts are all there, and if the parts are, doing, are, are, are healthy parts. You know, if, you, if you're missing parts, the engine's not going to work right. And uh, I remember back in seminary, when I, when I began my, uh, uh, my postgraduate training, one of the analogies that we were coming up on the gospel is that the gospel is like an engine. And you'll see this application in a moment, but 
Uh, there were three parts that all of them tell me, all about the gasoline engine. You need fuel, you need fire, and you need air, or the compressed air. It's a type of oxygen. Now, you need all three of those things in order for the engine to have the combustion. And when you have the combustion, if it's captured right, it creates a power. And if that power is distributed by some design, you're able to either turn something or spin something uh, or a lot of things besides making noise. But there is power that is generated when you have those things. But if you just have the three parts, it's like my mower that sits in the garage all winter. It doesn't do anything but just sit there. So the neat thing about the gospel that we were talking about in seminary was that the three things come together the three elements, and when they come together, salvation is taking place. And this had to do the fuel we were likening to the Bible. Okay, you have to have the truth. If you don't have the truth, then you're not going to have anything to burn, nothing to be able to, to get things going. And the fire, of course, the spark, the something that stirs it all up, is not your energy, but it's what God does to stir you up. He begins a good work in you. So the spark is like the Holy Spirit. And then when you find that, that compressed air or the chamber, it's kind of like the world that God has placed us in, whereby we are to live out the Christian life. And so when we have the truth and we have the Holy Spirit and we have a direction in life, it's amazing what God can do. The dunamis, the power of God that flows through us. And you can see it as it unfolds. It's a part of this transformation. Now, the three parts that are in our text, they're simple. I just want to highlight. In the first one when we look at this uh, God's engine, is we see our rightful place in God's kingdom. This is one of the parts. In verse 1, he, he spends quite a few phrases to be able to say, hey, do you see your place? Second part is that you see the ugliness of sin in this world. Do you really see it or not? Are you still have blinders on or you have sunglasses on, shades, so that you can still say, ah, it's okay. And the third part is we see the beauty of God's providence. In other words, something happens where you can begin to see the beauty of what God is doing and working it all together for good. Now, I want to explain these parts in the text. First, that rightful place in the kingdom. If you'll, if you'll join me in Romans 12, chapter 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he goes on, do not be conformed to this world. So you can see verse 2 is where you see the shift about the world and the ugliness. So in verse 1, we get the mechanics, uh, we get this, the part that's there. He says, you need to be able to grasp this. God has to open your eyes up to be able to see your place. It's almost like if you're a part in, in, a, in a, I sometimes use the analogy of a hand, you got to see where your finger is connected. And so when you read this particular text, you can, you can understand that we are to embrace our place, to recognize that we are his workmanship now, and, and we're supposed to, and when we realize that he is our master, guess what happens? Then we want to get in line with his agenda. So if you look at it, Paul, he has just given 11 chapters to the people that are in Rome. As I told you, they tended to be educated and they tended to be familiar with the governmental persecution. They, they didn't have an easy life and they didn't have nice churches to go to with air conditioning. He writes to them and he says, I appeal to you guys, you Christians, you believers. He calls them brothers, Adafoy. And he says, I appeal to you because of God's mercies. Now, this is a great point. 
at the very beginning of this appeal is really the idea that you are not in the center of the universe. He says, the reason I'm coming to you as an individual is because of what God has done. Now, how can I say this? It's because the previous 11 chapters, especially in chapters 9, 10, and 11, you can see that God has gone to great extremes to be able to, to bring the gospel to you. In fact, in Romans 10, how can you believe if you don't hear? How can you hear if somebody isn't sent? And, and so God raises up people to send into the world so that you might be reached. It's really interesting how much God is involved. He is the prerequisite for any kind of our response. And so Paul is saying to the believers, he says, my goodness, I'm going to tell you about this transformation, but I got to start with God, by the mercies of God. It's a little bit unusual here. Most of us would, would probably want to talk about by the grace of God, right? Why wouldn't Paul say, I appeal to you, brothers, by the grace of God? Why is he appealing by the mercies of God? The idea of mercy here is similar to what you might find at a funeral home. When you go and you realize that somebody's dead, uh, somebody has passed away, and, and when you're there, what kind of a facial expression do you usually maintain? Do you go around being silly? Are you a, the life of the party? No, during usually those moments, there is a sobriety. There is a, sub, a seriousness. There is a sympathy that you have. And when you look at this term of, of mercies of God, it says that God is fully aware of our situation. God in heaven knows. Now, I also want you to know that there was God the Son who took on flesh. And while he was on this earth, do you, have you ever seen the mansions that he has on earth? That he lived in all 33 years of his life? You know I'm making that up. I hope any of you weren't confused. When Jesus came to this world, he did not come to be served. He came to serve. In fact, he said foxes have holes and, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't. Jesus didn't accumulate all those things. When he came to this earth, he understood suffering. He understood what it means to go through a lifetime. Many of us, we may describe our life in terms of prayer requests and prayers and of praises. Depending on what mood you're in, you may be filled with more of one than the other. You might be going around saying, wow, God is so good. Look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. On the other hand, you might be saying, boy, this is a tough life. And you might start praying about this and that and the struggles of getting older and kids that are not paying attention to God. Or, or even, you might even look at the state of the church, the state of a Christian nation that's in decline, or the state of war where we actually get to see in our lifetime, we get to see buildings blown up and we hear of people dying and it just becomes a number that just gets bigger and bigger. Even to the point that we're almost ready to say, just stop killing people. And you, and you don't even understand that to be in bondage is almost another form of death. We do live in a fallen world. So you can see this contrast. But when God, in his mercies, he is telling the believers, I know what you're going through. When Jesus was on earth, remember how he said, come unto me, all ye that are laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll help you to be still and know God. 
Now, that's where the Apostle Paul starts. I beg of you, brothers, because of God's understanding of your situation, that you would get your understanding of where you are. The part of transformation, is it begins with you grasping that you are not your own. Paul's already told this to the Corinthian people when he said, you're not your own, your body is not your own, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Here he ends up saying that you need to present your bodies to him because he's the boss and you're not. He is your all in all. And therefore, he says, it's your reasonable service, it's your reasonable duty, or in the, in the uh, ESV it says, it's your spiritual worship. If you see the way it's supposed to be, it's not only reasonable, it's the only thing that makes sense. That you, with the little life you have, whether you get three score and ten, or whether you get five score, hundred years, if you, whatever amount of time you get, that you would present this body of yours in service to the king. For those of you that like Lord of the Rings, the third movie, you know, you have that little uh, hobbit who ends up coming up to, uh, at, at, at the, uh, the one king, the one guy, and he says, I give, I pledge you my fealty. And this little guy now is stuck in service of this bad king. And it's really nice when finally he gets released from that. And it makes you happy in the movie to be able to say, wow, the hobbit is finally released. He's no longer enslaved. I want you to know that in this particular passage, Paul is saying, I'm begging of you because God knows your situation, that this is the best it can be, that you are going to be a child of God. You're going to be in the Lord's army. You're going to be engaged as a part of the body of Christ. I like to use the analogy that you're one of his fingers. You're his tongue. You're one of the feet. In fact, he says that in Romans 10, two chapters earlier. How beautiful are the feet who go into the world and share this good news. Now, do you see how lovely this first part is? Now, the second part is, is a little bit more obvious. It's your awareness of this world. We sang about it in a couple of the songs, and you saw it even in Nicodemus coming. Nicodemus says that you know, he doesn't understand how to go be born again. He doesn't understand a lot. But Jesus said, look, it's a difference between light and darkness. People are in the dark. When they're born in sin, they're in darkness. They are not born with a clean slate and, and everybody is saying, oh, isn't my kid perfect and beautiful? Maybe cute. Maybe ugly cute. You know what I mean. It's awesome to see little life, but you don't have to train your kids to be bad. You don't have to train them to disobey their parents. You don't even have to train them to steal. You don't have to train them to deceive. They even get those crocodile tears. And they know how to manipulate from the very beginning. <laughs> and oddly enough, they train us very well. We can tell when a cry is real and when a cry isn't. And then they can also badger us enough that we give in to their cries even when we know they're manipulating us. And then we say, isn't it cute? And now as a grandparent, isn't it great that they have parents? Now... What I want you to know, though, is that in this particular second part of the engine of transformation is that you have to have your eyes open to see the ugliness of sin. In today's culture, in America, they are putting blinders on us. It's almost like we have cataracts. We can't even look now and see bad behavior and see it as bad. We have to rename it. We have to say it's woke, it's cool, it's acceptable. And before long, it's not merely acceptable. You're persecuted if you don't embrace it. 
You're the bad guy if you say anything about it and even if you just don't agree with it and stay quiet. In the military, they were trying to ferret out people who didn't toe the line. And if you're in some of, the, some of the education systems, they are trying to find out whether you are in agreement if you're falling in line or whether you're not. It's almost like they have boxes that they're checking. And if you don't check all the boxes, you get passed over for promotions or you get squeezed out. And when it comes to social media, instead of squeezing you out with a job, they just end up canceling you or demonetizing you and they end up making you feel like you're invisible. Now, the ugliness of sin is what Paul is talking about in verse 2. You got that verse in front of you? Don't be conformed to this world. Don't just fall in line. Don't become a part of this world just like everybody else. He's talking about a secular world. And he says, this secular world is out there and it's broken and it's living in darkness. It's like people are walking around with, not only with blinders on, but they're blind. They don't see God. They don't see God's agenda. They don't see God's purposes. And as a result, if they're totally blind, what do you expect them to conclude? Well, since I can't see God, there must not be a God. If there's no God, then what are we here for? Well, if you listen to some people, they have said, well, let's try to create a better world. You know, you're familiar with the song, you know, Imagine, where, you get, where, where John Lennon talks about that he dreams of a world that's going to be free of borders and free of religion and free of all these controversies, and it's just going to be heaven on earth. But he doesn't believe in heaven, so he can't say heaven on earth. It's a utopia. Now, there's some people that, that are believing that you can fix this world up, you can change the climate, and you can change the people, and you can even change our habits. We need to give up gasoline engines altogether, so it's kind of a shame that I'm preaching on, uh, on engines. You know, they would rather us just let that all go, and we should just go green or something like that, because their vision, it's not bad if you drive electric or whatever, but their vision is to have a heaven on earth. And once you see this, you recognize that you don't need to conform to that. Don't be just another cog in the wheel. Don't just go with the flow. Don't just blend in. Don't be like the world. Don't assimilate. That's the second part. The third part is an interesting thing, too, that as I was understanding it earlier, you can see God's providence. If you look at the end of verse 3, or at the end of verse 2, he says that since you're not going to be like the world, he says the transformation process has a different, uh, a different part at the end. It says it has a renewed mind in verse, uh, at the end of verse, uh, middle of verse 2. This renewed mind helps you to do something that you didn't do before. It changes everything. You actually do the will of God. Now, what does this tell us about the will of God? Is it awful? Is it hard? What are the adjectives that you find? Whether you're looking at the ESV or the King James, or if you're looking at the Greek, you're going to find that these adjectives are that it is good, that it is perfect, and that it is, a, it is pleasing to God. In other words, in its face value, God's will is good because God is good. Okay, so, so you can't say it's bad. And if it's good, then it's not evil. If it's, if it's good, then it's in the light. 
God has a purpose. He's accomplishing his purposes, and it's good. Now, when you say it's acceptable, then God is actually saying, I'm putting you here to do this. You don't have to do everything else, but this is what you're here to do. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship created in Christ to be doing these things that he has before ordained that you should be accomplishing. And then that, that, that element there of, of uh, the renewed mind, which R.C. Sproul picks up in his ministry title, the renewing of your mind, it means that you now have a mind that sees things differently, a mind that grasps things in a new way. I think it matches up with 1 Corinthians 5, where it says, behold, you become a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, all things are new. If I use my engine analogy, it's almost like God put a new spark plug in that, in that lawnmower that's been sitting there forever, because in creation, God made all people with a faith engine. But most people never have that faith engine started up. Okay, and so it's really, really interesting when you see these three parts that are there, and I review them for you very quickly here. The first one is that you see, uh, you see your place in God's kingdom. God says you are his. That's part of the transformation. You're not your own. You are here as God's. Secondly, you see that the, the world that we're in is messed up, it's broken, and it's sinful, and you're not supposed to assimilate. And the third thing you recognize is you see God's handiwork, his beauty, how it all comes together. Now, in making that, that's the parts, and I'm kind of already giving you the process, but I'll quickly summarize the process for you. Uh, the way that it works, let me take you to Philippians 1.6. Now that you see the parts, I want to weave it together for us as we come to the table. Philippians 1.6 says that who starts the work? God starts the work. He says, he says, being confident of this, that the one who began the good work in you is going to finish it. If you realize that, that God is the mover and shaker, he is the one that has the agenda, he is the one who is authoritative, he, he starts the faith engine. I, I argue that, um, that God has already created you in his image. You are not like your pet, you are not like your, your plant, he, you are not like your automobile. Okay, there may be, he's not, you're not like your computer either. Okay, God made you unique. And what he gave you that he didn't give everybody else is a soul that will never die. He made us in his, in, in his own image. And so by being in the image of God, we are, as I call it, a faith engine. Every human being is a faith engine. All the parts are there. But the transformation doesn't take place in everybody. And so when you realize this, the second point of this process is that God is the one who puts it all there. The second point is that God regenerates us at some moment in time. While we were lost, dead in sins, because of Calvary's transaction, he paid the price. Our sin mortgage was paid in full. And, and the point that I mentioned earlier, God saw the blood and he passed over. It wasn't the blood of a lamb back in Exodus 12. It was the blood of the spotless lamb, Luke 22. God enabled us now to see and to hear. And Paul is telling the Roman people, he says, I've told you in Romans 10 how beautiful are the feet who, of those people who come and tell you about what God has done. Because how does faith come? Does faith come as a transaction where you can pay money and put more in the offering plate or the box? If it was, then you guys ought to dump out your wallets and, and empty out your bank accounts and be full of faith. If it was that easy... 
No, faith comes by hearing the word of God. And hearing the word of God is by hearing those that God has put the message in their hearts for them to come and to communicate with you. And it's really wonderful that when God has orchestrated in this world so that the message would actually reach your ears and it would permeate your heart, it would regenerate you, it would pull the start plug on, or the, I'm thinking of my lawnmower, it would pull that string that gets the faith engine working. And once the faith engine is working in you, power is produced, change happens. I'm always fascinated with the regeneration. While we were yet dead in sins and trespasses, we couldn't save ourselves. God had to start a work in us, and he regenerates us. Now, the third thing is when the faith engine is started, it produces a response. And this is where when God opens your eyes, you're just like Paul in, in Acts chapter 9. There was this guy named Saul, and he turns into Paul. Do you remember how that happened? He was, he was on a journey to Damascus. He was very religious. He wanted to, stop, to stomp out everybody that was having fake news. He thought that Jesus was fake news. He thought the resurrection was fake news. And he was just a precursor of, of social media. And he was going to cancel everybody. He wanted to cut their tongues out, not literally, but he wanted to stop them from being able to speak or to communicate that, that this Jesus rose from the dead. He says, it's messing people up. They're turning, they're turning into fruitcakes. They're mental. They're willing to die for this guy who's already, I saw him, I heard about him, death. And it was on that road to Damascus, uh, the road to Damascus, that that's when the transformation took place. He, his spiritual eyes were opened even while his physical eyes were closed. His deafness to hearing the Spirit of God was changed when he heard audibly in his own head and maybe even in the area. We don't know exactly all the details. But Jesus called him by name. And Saul heard him. Saul, Saul, look at you. You're a mess. You're attacking me. And Saul at that point is saying, ah, Who are you, Lord? He already knew. God had already pulled the, the start engine. God had already spoke to his heart. And all that Old Testament knowledge that he had all of a sudden started to, to, to generate. There is a God. God is real. God speaks. God is know, knows me. God has given me the eyes of faith. Now, he couldn't see very far. I mean, my goodness, the people around him thought he was crazy. The Christians thought he was crazy. That poor guy, everybody thought he was crazy. But God had changed him. Paul then now urges in his new estate of being saved. He urges the Roman believers to see this life now accordingly, like he tells the people in Philippi. Philippians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I now live, and I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Do you see how it all works? God was opening his eyes up to be able to see, oh, I'm going to present my body to him. It's already his. It is the thank you note for what God has already done. So the response that we have is to call upon the name of the Lord and to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, the Bible also goes on to say, and we see it in this text, this process of, of, the, of, the, uh, of transformation, is that he opens our eyes up to see, but then he also makes us want to repent. Repentance is a word that some people around throw it around real easy. And sometimes they even say they forgive real easy. But the whole idea of repentance in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says that you see the ugliness of this stuff. 
Do you really see how ugly sin is? I've used the analogy, you've heard it a hundred thousand times about the, the helicopter view of faith. That when God gives you the eyes of faith, you not only see God, which is my point one, but you also see the ugliness of sin and the beauty of holiness. They're simultaneous. You can see that it is lovely to honor your parents and not to dishonor them. You can see that it's wonderful to speak the truth instead of to deceive. You can see how family can be a lovely thing where you can bond and connect instead of being alienated and, and, and angry and enemies and aliens. You can see the difference clearly because you can see with the eyes that God gives you, the eyes of faith that you couldn't see before with this new mind that he's given you. The mind of Christ, Philippians chapter 2. Then if you go a little further, you can see that it's also that we seek to know what our Lord bids us to do. It's not just enough that you see that God is great and how you fit into God's relationship. It's not just wonderful that you repent of your sin and you see the ugliness of conforming to this world, but rather the transformation is complete when you are doing the will of God, when you now want to do what God has put in front of you. My son is finishing up his one year at Impact 360. And it's really interesting, as I talked to him on the phone yesterday, Dad, I'm looking forward to coming home. It's going to be great. He'll be at church at least one on Sunday. And, and he's like, he's talking about the future. He's talking about what God is doing. Are you talking about the future? Are you talking about what God is doing in you? You see, when you have this new mind, you want to do the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is, and you don't want to just be a hearer, but a doer of the word, as James says. And so then he says, the way you figure out whether it's God's will or not, it's not by flipping a coin. If you bring up verse 2, you can see it clearly. It says that by testing, you may discern. How do you know whether you're supposed to join this church or not? Do you ask 20 people? Do you think I should join? Do you think I should join? Oh, that church is too troubled. You shouldn't join it. How do you know whether it's God's will or not? And the thing is, is that this idea of testing, it's going through the sufferings of this world. It's living this life. When you're living this life and then you're going through the difficulties, you're constantly finding that the Lord is your shepherd and you're not lacking. He leads you in the paths of righteousness. He takes you at times to have your soul restored by the green pastures and by the calm waters. And then there's times when God will take you on that journey in the path of righteousness that leads you into the path of the enemies where you go through the valleys of the shadows of death and it's almost like the arrows are flying at you in all the directions. And then you end up finding... <sighs> You almost feel exhausted. And then he nourishes you and he comes to you almost like we will at the table today. And we still are in this fallen world. He says you can dine in this fallen world even in the presence with all kinds of enemies around us. He'll take care of you. And he's promised that because you're his, he's prepared a place for you in glory. You don't have to create it on earth it's already prepared for us. He's preparing for us in heaven when it's all complete and finished, when God's work on earth is done, when his good and acceptable and perfect will is accomplished, it's all there. As we come to the table, though, in a moment, there's just one thing I want to throw in as, a, as an interesting twist. Who is called to present? Romans chapter 1, if you look, or 12, 1. Look at verse 1. Who is supposed to be presenting? 
I appeal to you that he says to present whose? Your bodies. So can you answer that question? Who is called to, to present? Okay, if I had a show of hands, who is called to present your life? Put your hand up if, if you're supposed to call, if, if, you're, if you're called to present your life. Or does this only apply to other people? You don't have to put them up. <laughs> Putting up hands in church is kind of a weird feeling. But it might wake you up if you're starting to doze off in that be still land. Now, I'm just trying to say, think about it for a moment. We call this the priesthood of believers. Some of you panic at that. But a priest in the Old Testament used to be the one that you would bring your lamb to and he would take it to the altar. And if you look to the Yom Kippur and Leviticus or if you look to any of the regular sacrifices, you would bring that special lamb and then the priest would present it on your behalf. And he would show you how to do it, to lay your hands on a head, to be able to transfer your sin onto that. And so judgment comes on the animal instead of on you. And you can see all of that. But in the New Testament, after Jesus has already paid it in full, after, after Paul has met the risen Christ, he looks at the, all of the Christians and he says, you are the priests. You don't have to go to anybody else. You don't even have to go to your preacher. You are responsible to present the sacrifice. And this I have to clarify. There's a lot of people who mess up this idea that by presenting yourself, you're getting salvation. It is not like that at all. It's because you've already been saved, because God has already started the faith engine in you, that this is not about your justification, this is about your sanctification, that God is calling you to be sanctified, to engage in that place, to be set apart unto him, holy and acceptable. And who is supposed to do this? You are. I'm supposed to do it for me, you're supposed to do it for you, you for you, you for you. Present your bodies not as a dead sacrifice. Not after you've worn out everything and it's like a tire that's got no more tread left on it and say, oh yeah, I'll give that tire away. No, no. Your living sacrifice, the life that you now have, you give it to him now. You present it to him not just on Sunday mornings, but it's all the time. My life I have, I give to thee. It's... There's nothing in my hands I, I have, but only to your cross I cling. He says, you give it all. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. This priesthood of believers is a beautiful thing. That even as we give him our cares and concerns, as 1 Peter says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. We're supposed to give him those things. But here Paul says, give him not only that the thoughts and your meditations but and it's it's not even just your time but it's your life your body is representative of your life present it to him and he says you know how god the father provided a perfect sacrifice to be able to to give atonement he says because he's already paid for your sins the transformation takes place if you bring the butterfly back up you're going to find that on the other side of, of regeneration then we are beautiful we present our lives to him. Now the question will be is, is he finished working on you? Is he finished working on me? Are you done yet? Has the thermometer popped out? You know, I'm talking about a butterball turkey. Are you done yet? 
No, the better question is, is God still working on you to make you what you ought to be? It took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. You know the song, he's still working on me.